let's open up with the word of prayer this morning. Uh, dear God, we come before you this morning and we recognize your mercy that you have given to us through Jesus Christ, the promises that you have made, promises to redeem us, promises to bring us to yourself, promises to bless us. And so this morning as we rejoice in song, we rejoice in what you have done through your son, Jesus Christ. And so we come this morning asking your spirit to work powerfully in our hearts, work powerfully through the word proclaimed. And I pray that your spirit would come and change our hearts, open our the eyes of our hearts to see you as glorious. Transform us into the image of Jesus Christ. So, Father, work in our midst this morning for your glory. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Uh, this morning what we're going to look at is we're going to look at an overview of the story of Jacob. Um, so if you're going to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 28, we'll spend most of our time in Genesis 28. So we're going to start with an overview of Jacob. We'll give a, a brief context of the history of what, where, how Jacob got to where he was. We're going to pause on chapter 28, and then we're going to look at some of the after effects of Jacob. And so this morning, what I want to focus on in this life of Jacob is that Jacob is a heroless hero. As I was doing my study on, on Jacob, I came to the conclusion that Jacob isn't the great hero that we often think of him as. And I had a radical transition in my perspective on who Jacob was based upon God and his mercy. And so this morning, as we look at the life of Jacob, I want us to identify with who Jacob is, learn from Jacob's mistakes, but not learn so, so we can be different from Jacob, but so that we can learn of God's mercy. I think throughout the story of Jacob, one thing that we miss is God's mercy. We know from the, the name Jacob means deceiver, and if you are familiar with the Bible, you know that Jacob did a lot of deceiving. Jacob had no right to God's grace, to God's mercy, but it's in God's mercy that God came down and made a covenant with Jacob. And so this morning, we're going to look, give a, again, give an overview of Jacob and pause and reflect upon God's mercy that he directed towards Jacob. And in identifying with Jacob, reflect upon the mercy that God has given to us. So as we begin, I want to give a definition for mercy that I want us to remember throughout the entire sermon this morning. Uh, something to keep in mind that if I mention mercy, that these, this definition is implied in when, I, when I use mercy. And God's mercy is only by his condescension expressed by way of covenant. I'll explain that before we jump in. Um, God's mercy is only expressed by his condescension and expressed by way of covenant. First off, the word condescension, oftentimes we think of condescending as looking down. So I think that I'm better than you, so I condescend in my actions, in my attitudes, and I, make, and I belittle you. That's not exactly what I want to bring about with that word this morning. What I want to bring about with the word condescend is more of a lowering. 
So God is completely other, and we are sinful. In order for us to have any relationship with God, as Ephesians 2 talks about, we are dead, we cannot do anything. In order for us to gain anything from God, God must come down to meet us where we are. And so by the word condescend, I want us to think of God coming down to meet us where we are because we cannot come back to God. So God's mercy is only by his condescension, only by his coming down to meet us where we are. And this coming down to meet us where we are is expressed by way of covenant. So the way that we receive God's mercy is by him coming down to us and making a covenant with us. And as we'll look at this morning in chapter 28 of Genesis, that God came down and made a covenant with Jacob because Jacob had no right to earn anything from God. It was all by God's design, by God's mercy, that he would come down and make a covenant with you and I and make a covenant with Jacob. And so once again, God, the definition of mercy that I want to work with this morning is God's mercy that leads us to salvation, that, that mercy is only by his condescension and is expressed by way of covenant. So a little background, kind of helping to describe mercy before we get into the life of Jacob. The Bible opens up with man, man and woman in the Garden of Eden. And what happens after a short while in the Garden of Eden is that they sin. And in their sin, all of mankind is now cursed and under the weight of sin. And what happens in that, ver that third chapter of Genesis is our first introduction to man's need of mercy. We need mercy. Man came and we sinned and we fell and we needed God to come down. We needed God to condescend, to come down to where we were, to provide grace. The effects of the fall, God gave a promise to Adam and Eve, saying, a redeemer is coming. I'm making a covenant with you that a redeemer is going to come. I'm making a promise. I will send my redeemer and show you mercy, Adam and Eve. You who I said will die, the day you eat of that fruit of the tree. I'm giving you mercy, something that you do not deserve. You don't deserve mercy. We're sinful. But God came down into the fall and gave us a promise. A redeemer was coming. The story continues. Man is really wicked, and we come across Noah. Mercy, again. Why would God choose Noah? Random guy on the face of the earth chose Noah, brought him to himself, gave him righteousness, saved him from destroying the rest of the world. Mercy. Noah didn't deserve that. God's mercy. We know that Noah didn't deserve it because a few chapters later, Noah sins and he gets drunk and a whole bunch of bad stuff happens. But God, in his mercy, called Noah and saved him from destruction. The story continues and we come to the Tower of Babel. And in the Tower of Babel, the people decided to build a tower and this tower was supposed to reach heaven. I don't think this tower was supposed to be a skyscraper. If you read any of the ancient Near East type literature or do any historical studies, 
this tower that Babel was supposed to be was supposed to be a temple. You see, they thought that the high point was where the gods would come down and dwell and would live in that high point, that temple that they would build. So they built what we called, most likely built a, a ziggurat, which is a stair-stepped structure that comes to a point which imitates a mountain, which is a high place where the gods would come down. And so the people decided that instead of God condescending to them, they would build a tower to reach up to God. That they would try to earn their salvation through their own works and their own doings and say, well, look, we are just as powerful as God. We can come up to God and meet him. And God, God saw what they, were, what they were saying in their hearts and what they were actually doing, and he came down and he cursed them. And he gave them different languages, which now furthers their despair. We looked at the despair of Genesis 3 when we don't, had no way, we sinned, we're out of God's presence. Now we're even in further despair because God promised a redeemer, but we can't even communicate with each other. But that didn't stop God's mercy. So the story continues, and we come across Abraham. Abraham living in this context of Babel where they believe in numerous gods, not the true God. And yet God, not because of who Abraham was, in his mercy, he came down and he called Abraham to himself. And he mercifully chose Abraham to leave his family and to start a new family, the family of God, and inherited the blessings and again, we see God's mercy extended to Abraham. And so the conclusion I want to make before we jump into the story of Jacob is that God's mercy is an integral part of redemptive history. We've been looking at the beginning part of redemptive history. Since the, since the fall, we need redemption. And this history is God condescending to us, God coming down, God lowering himself to where we are helpless in our sin to make a promise to us that we can have hope because of who he is. Cause again, because we are dead in sin, we cannot reach out to God. We are not worthy of anything. It is only by God's mercy that we have any hope. See, we are desperate people in need of a redeemer. And Jacob's story continues this theme of God's mercy that I think that we desperately need to hear. So a little bit of background before we jump into the text that I really want to spend time and develop God's mercy a little bit more. A little bit of background is, is God chose Jacob. If you look a few chapters before chapter 28, God chose Jacob when he was in Rachel's womb. It was him and Esau, twins, and Rachel feels them fighting within them and says, what's going on here? And God comes and tells them, you have two nations within you. And I'm going to choose the younger to serve the older. I'm going to choose Jacob. Again, we find someone who doesn't deserve mercy. But God chose Jacob, the unlikely choice. He was the younger one 
when they were born, Jacob was the one who stayed around the house. Esau was the great hunter, like a Gaston figure, all hairy and burly and a really good hunter. He's the guy that should have inherited everything. But God chose the weak person, the person in that time period who had looked, had been looked at and said, that's a person not worth any. One, he's the second born, doesn't have any right to any inheritance. And two, he stays at home all the time. He doesn't have any skill sets besides sewing and cooking. That's, I don't know if he did or not, but. <laughs> like, that, that's, kind, that's the kind of perspective that someone would have on Jacob. Yet God, in his mercy, chose Jacob, not because of anything that he could accomplish. And I just want us to, to pause and remember that we are just like Jacob. I think so often, in our pride, we forget how desperate we really are. We forget how sinful we really are. We forget that that sin creeps in so easily, and we so easily forget about God. And just like the people of Babel, we tried to build our own kingdom. We tried to build our own way to God. Instead of, in humility, recognizing our need for mercy. So who was Jacob? He was the younger, but I have two things I want to look at to describe Jacob. First off, Jacob was a deceiver. I mean, his name means deceiver, so it's good that he, I mean, not good, but um, he lived up to his name, being a deceiver. And what I find interesting about Jacob is that Jacob, coming from this rich line of God's mercy, God showing mercy to Abraham, to Isaac, and yet Jacob didn't really understand this mercy, and I'll argue for that in a little bit, but he didn't really understand this mercy, and, and what he was doing, he was trusting in his skillful deception in order to gain what God had already promised. God had already promised before he was born that he was going to receive the birthright, that he was going to receive his blessing. God had already promised that. And what does Jacob do? Jacob, trusting his own skill, again, just like people of Babel, trusting their own skill, their own works to create something, Jacob does the exact same thing. In his own skill, he tries to build up his own kingdom. He deceives his brother for his birthright in, in chapter, 20, not chapter 25. And his, his brother comes back from hunting, hungry, and Jacob's like, well, if you sell me your birthright, I'll give you my little pot of stew here. And he deceives Esau into thinking that his pot of stew is the greatest thing ever, and Esau's sinful heart is given away to it. And Jacob deceives his brother, and he earns this birthright that, again, that God had already promised. Two chapters later, in Genesis 27, Jacob steals the blessing. Isaac, his father, was getting old, and he wanted to pass on his blessing or his will before he died. And so he called Esau in, the older brother again, the, the burly figure who was going to save the day. And he told his son Esau to go out and hunt and kill an animal and bring it back and cook him a meal, his favorite meal, and then he's going to eat and give Esau the blessing. Jacob's mother overhears. And she says, Jacob, do all this stuff. Put on some hairy garments because your brother is really hairy. Um, put on his best clothes that, so they smell like him. And we're going to go make your father his best soup, and we're going to come back before Esau gets back. 
And so they do this, and Jacob goes, and he deceives his father, who couldn't really see very well, so he couldn't really see who his son was because he touched him, and he was furry, so he thought of his older brother, and he smelled like his older brother, so he didn't really talk like him, but he had two against one, so he went with his older brother because he smells like him. So Jacob deceived his father into receiving the blessing. Again, this is something that God had already promised him. God had already promised him that he would receive the blessing, and yet he deceives, trusting in his own skill, his own works to accomplish something, which results in what? Esau comes home and is angry, obviously. And Esau waits and says, you know, once my father passes, my father wouldn't like it very much, but once he passes, Jacob's mine. I'm going to kill Jacob. So, again, Jacob's mother comes in and helps him out and says to her, her husband, Isaac, we need to send Jacob away so he doesn't marry any one of the Canaanites. Send him back to my house. She was from miles and miles away. Send him back to my family to get a wife. And so, Jacob, or so Isaac blesses Jacob, his son, and and sends him on his way. And so the first thing is Jacob was a deceiver. The second thing we now come across is Jacob is a fugitive. He is running from his very brother because of, as a consequence for his actions. And in running from his brother, what is he doing? There's something a little more symbolic that is happening here, is that Isaac, was a representation of God's promise. And in Jacob running, because of his own sin, running, he was separating himself from God's promise. He was running away, running for his life. Jacob was running from God and his promises. You see, Jacob's problem is also our problem. In this life of Jacob, in his, both his deception and his running away as a fugitive, he didn't know God. He didn't remember who God was. You, you see, uh, earlier this week I did the math, and it's potential that Jacob could have been around with Abraham. It would have been only been a few years. But he could have experienced Abraham telling him the story of how he left his family to serve God. How all these amazing things happened to Abraham. How God had come down and made a covenant with him. He could have heard it from his father Isaac telling him stories of, of, stories of Abraham or other stories of how God came down in his covenant, in his mercy and blessed him. Yet, yet Jacob, just like us, forgot and chose not to remember who God was, and in his own strength, tried to deceive his way into accomplishing something. You see, what Jacob was doing was he was living for his, his own kingdom. Yeah, he wanted the birthright, and he wanted the blessing, but it was more for what he could gain from it than glorifying God. See, he wanted to establish himself and establish his own kingdom, and I find that so often, we often pursue our kingdoms, and just like the people of Babel, just like Jacob, we build within our own strength to accomplish something, to create something in our own strength apart from God in attempts to be like God. 
again going back to the fall. The very same struggle from the beginning. Man wanting the glory, man wanting to be like God. And we find ourselves today in the same point, in the same point of needing God's mercy. And so we find Jacob running from his brother, running as a deceiver. And he comes, and we come to our passage today. Um, I'm just going to read through where we find ourselves, um, and then we'll jump in and we'll kind of explore a few of the phrases and thoughts. So so, um, Genesis 28, verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba, where his family was, and he went towards Haran, his ultimate destination, where his mother's family was. So on this journey from Beersheba to Haran, he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones at that place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached into the heaven. And behold, the angels were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am going with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. There is none, this is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head, and he set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in the way, this way that I go, and will give me the bread and to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And all that you give me, I will give you a full tenth. And so we come to the point when Jacob is running away. Jacob is running away not only from his family, but the blessings of God, running away from God in thinking that he is, in his pride, has anything that he can offer. And in his point of desperation, often how God, it's funny how God tried to use those times of desperation. When God brought Jacob to the end of himself, God revealed himself in his mercy condescended and made a covenant with Jacob. So God came down and made a covenant with Jacob and he did did this in the form of a dream. And the setting of the dream was that of a ladder 
I want to think more of a more than a ladder that we think of today, more than a ladder with rungs on it, but a ladder that looks like a temple, a ziggurat, stair steps up to heaven. So in this dream, the very first thing that we see is that there is a temple. Picture of mercy. God didn't have to come down to Jacob. I mean, he did because of his previous promises, but in Jacob himself, he didn't have to come down to Jacob. But he established his covenant with Jacob. He came down in this temple, a Babel-like temple who tried to build up to God who could not. God came down and showed him his presence to Jacob. And in this description of this temple, first off, it's, it's grounded in the earth. Meaning God came down to the earth to be with Jacob where he was. And yet at the same time he's in the earth, the top of it is in the heavens. And here we get a scope of the character of God. Steve talked a little bit about this last week, is the, the imminence of and the transcendence of God. So the transcendence is God is over and above everything. He is glorious. He is worthy of everything. And yet this God, worthy, transcendent of everything, came down and was imminent, was close. He condescended down to be with Jacob. And so this, this structure of this ziggurat temple was meant to be a picture of God coming down and showing his presence, showing his mercy to Jacob. After we get the setting of the dream, God begins to communicate with Jacob and actually physically establishes covenant. covenant. And he starts off with the words, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. Interesting how I am or the Lord means I am. And the Lord here, if you notice that it's all caps, this is God's covenant name used throughout the Old Testament as God's covenant name, Yahweh. I am. And the the word I am carries the same weight that that temple did. It shows I am. God is completely other. He is transcendent. He is the only one. He is the only one who is eternal both past and future. He is the I am, the one who created everything. He is completely other. He is the one who is worthy of all glory, worthy of all praise. And yet this I am would come down and make a covenant with his people. And so again, we see this transcendence and this imminence, this great contrast which shows us the beauty of who God really is. But then God says, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac. And here God is orienting Jacob to the redemptive history that we looked at in the beginning. He's reminding Jacob of what he's done in the past. Reminding Jacob that he called Abraham in his mercy, out of, from his family, to be a blessing to all people. 
And here, God is reminding Jacob of what he has done in the past. And as he reminds Jacob of what he has done in the past, he continues and establishes covenant, not with his fathers, but with Jacob himself. The one who deceived, the one who trusted in his own skill, the one who is trying to build his own kingdom, God made a covenant with him. I'm not going to look at the specifics of the aspects of the covenant because I could take a very long time, but I just want to recognize that God came down and made a covenant. But there is something that God promised specifically to, I, uh, to Jacob, and that's found in verse 15. When God says, Behold, I am with you, and will go wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to you. And here again we see God's mercy to Jacob. God didn't have to bring him back to the land. He didn't have to give him peace. He didn't have to give him uh, provision. And yet God, in his mercy, chose to be with Jacob. To be with him. And again, we come across God's mercy. But what is Jacob's response? As God came down and made a covenant with Jacob so mercifully, Jacob's response was erroneous in two different ways. The first one is his response. How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. What was Jacob consumed with? Not the covenant of God. I mean, that's good and everything. But what Jacob's focus on was on was not God's covenant. It was on the place. The story continues, and he, we, as we read, he builds an altar, and he takes oil, and he consecrates this place, and he pours oil over it, and, and makes this a special place, and, and changes the name to Bethel. And his actions show that he was more consumed with the place than with the covenant of God. Because if you look back into the redemptive history we looked at this morning, look at Noah. What was his response to God's mercy? He got off the ark, and he worshipped God. He built an altar to God. He, worshiped, he didn't worship, wow, we landed on Mount Ararat. That's a great place. Let's worship this mountain. No, he worshipped God. What was Abraham's response when God made a covenant with him? He went out, and again, he sacrificed. He made an altar, and he worshipped God. What was Jacob's response? Wow, this is a great place. This is a great place. You see, it's almost like he's a child who receives a present, and they unwrap the present, and what do they want? They don't want the present, they want the wrapping paper. What? Jacob's all consumed with the wrapping paper. He's consumed with the place where God, where God came down rather than these amazing blessings that God's going to be with him, that God's going to give him the land, God's going to give him a family. He's consumed with the wrapping paper. Or to put it in 
different terms. It's Christmas morning and someone buys you a, an Audi sitting in the, the driveway. And you look out the window and you're like, well, that's a nice big red bow. What? You have this fancy car here and you're, you're happy about a bow? Like, what, what in the world are we doing? Yet I find that we are so often like Jacob. That we are consumed by things other than God. In our pride and our, our spiritual blindness, we get consumed with other things rather than recognizing the blessings that God has already given us. We get enthralled with these things like church programs. If our church just had a soup kitchen, we'd be a great church. If our church just had a sports program or a youth program, or maybe if we had a band or a new constitution and bylaws, then things will start to change. And while all of these things may be good things, what are they doing? In our hearts, they are taking the place of the very gift of salvation that God has given to us. And we begin to get consumed with these church things rather than Jesus Christ himself, who is our Savior. You see, we, we begin to think that all we need are these things, these ideas, or these activities. And then we'll be a good Christian. Then we'll be a good church. But God says, just like he said to Jacob, I am all you need. I will be with you. You don't need anything else. I will be with you. <coughs> or maybe we get enthralled with things more like devotions. And we legalistically, regularly read the Bible day in, day out. And similar to Jacob, who's trying to build his own kingdom, similar to the Tower of Babel people trying to build their own kingdom. We're trying to build our own knowledge rather than coming to a true knowledge of God. You see, we're consumed with revelation and forget the revealer. We forget the God who has revealed himself. And so we pursue this knowledge while forgetting God himself. Again, it's just like being consumed with the wrapping paper. We're forgetting the very author of Scripture, the one who has revealed himself as the God who has, in his mercy, has condescended, and we're consumed with a knowledge. See, we're, we're just like Jacob, getting consumed with all the wrong things. Or maybe we get consumed with our experiences. We are experienced driven people. Oftentimes we say, rather than I think or I believe, but I, I feel this way. I was filling out an application the other day and the church asked me, what do you feel about this? I was like, what? But we're, we're people who are, are driven and tossed by our emotions. Rather than being driven by the word of God. And here again, Jacob is, wow, this is a great experience. Look at this experience that I had. All enthralled with this dream, this vision. And just like him, we pursue emotions. For example, 
We often view our salvation as our salvation experience. And we think that because we had some spiritual high one time, that we are saved. Rather than grounding our salvation on the very truth of God's word, recognizing that we are sinners in need of a Redeemer, and that Redeemer is Jesus Christ. And because we have confessed our sins, that he is faithful and just to forgive our sins. Instead of recognizing that truth, we ground our salvation upon an experience. Or maybe our experience is Sunday morning coming and just singing songs and hearing a sermon. And we worship this experience of Sunday morning rather than worshiping God himself, the very God who we sing about, the very God who we preach, the very God who we are told about in his word. Another one, maybe, maybe it's guilt. Maybe we struggle with feeling guilty. But the question is, not, not do I feel guilty, but am I really guilty? Did I really sin? Did I really break the law? Am I really guilty? If you're standing in court and the judge asks you, well, are you guilty? Well, well I, I feel guilty. Uh, no, it's not what I ask you. Are you guilty? That's the question. And again, we, we base all of our decisions upon our feelings. And I understand this struggle because I struggle with it. I know that I sin against God. And my feelings tell me that I'm guilty. But often I'm just like Jacob. And that while I know that what I'm doing is wrong and I need to repent and I'm angry at myself for doing it, I hold on to that idol. And I don't want to let go. Rather than acknowledging the freedom that I have in Christ. And that my hope is not in this thing that I'm holding on to. My hope is not in my ability to not do this anymore, which I find so often is that I fight against this to not do this. Well, I shouldn't do this, so I'm not going to do this, but I can't stop doing it, so I'm angry at myself. Rather than letting this go and focusing that God says, I will be with you. I've sent my son. I've shown you mercy. What are you doing getting caught up in your own way? What are you doing acting like Jacob? deceiving, sinning, running away because of the consequences of your sin, rather than rejoicing in God's grace and God's mercy. See, I fi find that most, so often that we are living for our own kingdom. And where we inter interpret the truth of our lives according to our truth, the way we feel, the things that we want, this great dream that Jacob had, this great place, now called Bethel. And we often act like Jacob rather than rejoicing in God's mercy. Rejoicing that he would condescend to save people like us who forget him so often. And so Jacob, the first error was that he was all consumed with the place consecrated the place, changed the name. The second error that Jacob made is what we find in verse 20, is that Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me 
and will keep me in this way that I go. And will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come and again into my father's house. Then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And all that you give me, I will give you a full tenth. See, the second error that Jacob has is this if-then statement. Is that if God does this, if God provides for me, if God provides clothing, if God provides peace, if God provides food, if he provides for me, well then, then I'll serve God. Then I'll give you a tenth. Then I'll set up this place and I'll worship you. See, what Jacob does is he calls God to prove himself before surrendering belief to him. Before surrendering and saying, God, I'm helpless. He says, what's in it for me? God, if you do this, then, 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 I'll, then I'll serve you. What's in it for me? Again, Jacob living up to his name, deceiver. Though he can't deceive God, he's trying to work out a deal with God where he can benefit. And again, what, what do we find? That, that God has already promised to be with Jacob. He's already going to provide what he needs. But yet Jacob is distracted not by God's provision of spiritual strength. God, Jacob's distracted by his food and his clothing and his peace. And he's consumed by these physical things within his life. Rather than giving himself completely to God and say, God, I don't know where you're going to take me. I know I'm headed to Haran. Find a wife. I don't know what's going to happen along the way, but God, you promised to be with me. So in whatever path that you lead me down, whether it's a path of food or not food, clothing or not clothing, God, I will find my strength in you. You see, that's the appropriate response. When God comes down and makes a covenant, what happened to Abraham? God, God I'm, I'm leaving everything. You didn't tell me where to go? We're going there. Leaving everything. Or Isaiah, when he comes before in chapter 6 of Isaiah, he comes before the face of God and falls down in worshiping God. And God says, I need someone to go preach the gospel and no one's going to repent. Here I am. What? Or another example, Noah. Building an ark, being mocked, uh, mocked at, made fun of, because he was building an ark in the middle of who knows where. It's not going to rain, Noah. Yet go, Noah's response was not, well, if God makes it start to rain, then I'll build a boat. Well, too late. Or you think of the disciples. Jesus comes and says, follow me. They left everything. Left it right there on the beach. Jesus is more worthy of being followed. God is more worthy of our entire lives. And yet, what's Jacob's response? Well, God, if you show yourself to be faithful, then I'll trust you. And I find that so often we demand the same things from God. We say, God, if you establish my kingdom, well, then I'll give myself to you. If you give me this job promotion, well, then I'll serve you. God, if you give me more money, well, then I'll use that money to serve you. God, if you give me a nice car in the parking lot, bow on top. No. If, you, if you give me a car, then, then I'm going to use that car to serve you. Right now I have a, a junky car, which I can't really serve God with. Or, God,
God, if you give me a spouse, well, then, then I'll serve you. Then I'll really be able to serve you, God. Rather than recognizing, hey, God, this is where I am. You know, I've been wandering from you just like Jacob. I, I'm running away. I need to repent because I'm consumed with all the wrong things and cry out to God for his mercy. Instead of doing that, we say, my will be done, my kingdom come, my will be done. Instead of, like in the Lord's Prayer, saying, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done, it's not my kingdom. My kingdom come, my will be done, and once my will is done, well, then God, I'll, I'll give you a little portion off the side. But God says, man shall not live by bread alone. So even as Jacob was consumed with these physical things, even as so often we get consumed with these physical things, there's something bigger going on. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. See, our life does not come from the physical things. Our life does not come from bread, does not come from clothing, does not come from a spouse, a car, a job promotion. Our life comes from the very word of God that God in his mercy would show himself, make a covenant with us, reveal himself in his word. One way that this is evidenced is in our prayers. What do you pray for? Do you pray for God's provision? Do you pray for the very same things that Jacob was asking about? The, the peace, the safety on his journey to Haran, that he wouldn't get attacked by robbers and that when he would get there that he'd find a good wife? Do you pray for comfortability, having enough food, having enough clothing? What is the focus of your prayers? Is it trusting God in his sovereignty and saying, God, I don't know why you've brought me to this place, but here I am. Glorify yourself through me. May I be a blessing, just like he promised to Jacob to be a blessing to all people. May I be a blessing proclaiming your covenant and your faithfulness and your promises and trusting God even in those times. A personal struggle to share with you to kind of develop this thought of being consumed uh, with the wrong things is uh, sleep. I have not had much sleep lately. And oftentimes I find that my sinful response, just like Jacob's, is, God, if you give me a little bit of sleep, then I'll serve you. Because I'll be more awake and aware of what's going on rather than being all sleepy. And, or I excuse my actions because I'm tired. Well, I'm frustrated because I'm tired. But God, if you give me some sleep, then I'll serve you. You see, my, the problem is my starting point. My starting point is with the sinful me. And what God can do for me, and I'm just like Jacob saying, God, if you do this for me, well, then I'll do stuff for you. But the starting point is myself. Rather than recognizing, God, you're worthy of everything, even when I only get a little bit of sleep at night. You're worthy of everything, and God, I'm going to serve you the best that I can because you are worthy, because you are the one who have shown me mercy through your son, Jesus Christ, who is my Savior. And because of that, even if 
My hope is not in my sleep. My hope is no longer in the rest that I can get. My hope is in him. And it's going to change dramatically the way that I interact with people because, well, of course I'm tired. Yep, I'm clumsy. Drop that again. Whoops. My hope's not in spilling a coffee container. My hope is in Jesus Christ. My hope is in God and that God is with me. Not that the coffee cup is with me in my hand. My hope is with Jesus Christ. And one thing I'm reminded of is that in the midst of all these physical things, something that I'm reminded of is that Jesus ministered well on lack of sleep. There are numerous times throughout the Gospels where Jesus, at the beginning of Mark, calls his disciples, he spends the night at at Peter's house, gets up early in the morning to pray. When all the disciples are dead in their sleep, gets up and prays for hours until they actually go out and find him. I'm sure he was tired, exhausted from walking around and praying since maybe 2 o'clock in the morning. And he goes on throughout the entire day ministering well by because his hope was in the, the fact that he came to be our redeemer. It was not in the fact he got enough sleep. Or the one time when Jesus sent all of his disciples out on their missionary journey and they, they all came back and they're like, well, we need some rest, so we're going to go away and get away. Well, the people follow them. Well, what does Jesus do? Well, I'm not here about my rest. So I'm going to preach to the people all day long and it's going to be dinner time and they're all going to be starving and, well, now what do we do? Well, Jesus continued ministering even in his lack of sleep. Why? Because his hope was in God and what he had come to accomplish. And so often we get distracted by the little things in our lives. And like Jacob, we're like, God, just give me this and then I'll serve you. We get consumed with our food and our clothing and our sleep. And so in response, what we do is we need to acknowledge our sin like Jacob. And we need to repent of our sin. And we need to recognize God's faithful mercy. See, it's not about trying harder. It's not about me when I'm tired and frustrated. It's not about trying to not feel tired. It's about repenting and acknowledging that I have misplaced my hope. And that misplaced hope will always disappoint. And repenting and recognizing that Jesus Christ alone is my hope. It's a call to trust in his faithful mercy in the situation where he has placed me. It's a call to know him. See, God, in the midst of our sin, in the midst of Jacob's sin, is still faithfulness, faithful to his covenant promises. See, God is merciful and faithful to his promises in spite of Jacob's and our lack of faith. God is not dependent upon us to accomplish his purposes, yet at the same time, he is merciful to, de- to use us as the means for accomplishing those. He uses us to glorify himself. And he comes down and he wants us to be a part of that and he mercifully shows us himself and says, I am with you. It's interesting that the story of Jacob continues. And even after Jacob's response, getting consumed with the things and the experience, 
and demanding things of God. And yet God is even faithful to those demands of Jacob, ironically. But God's actions towards Jacob reveal that God is still merciful to him, even when he doesn't have a clue of what's really going on. The following stories continue, and, and Jacob comes to a well. And at this well, there's a bunch of flocks that are being gathered around. And what Jacob does is, is very interesting. He asks the, the shepherds there, is it time to water the, water the flocks? And they say, no, not everyone's gathered. And then he asks who they are, where they come from, and he finds out that this shepherdess who is approaching is his, I don't know, future wife, um, his mother's niece, his cousin, I guess, yeah, um, is approaching. And what Jacob does is he fulfills God's promise. God promised that Jacob would be a blessing. And so Jacob takes this immovable stone, and he moves it off, and he gives life-giving water to Rachel and to her flock, and he waters them. And, and Jacob is a blessing. So God uses Jacob in spite of himself. In spite of his rejection of the truth, God still uses Jacob to be a blessing. God also was faithful to Jacob and provided a family. He mercifully brought Jacob to that well to meet his wife, Rachel, and his family wasn't the most godly family. Um, trying to kill their youngest brother and selling him off to slavery and the story of Joseph. It wasn't the most godly family, but God was still faithful to his promise. And through Jacob's son, Judah, the promise of a Messiah continued. And God was still merciful to this family, this Israelite family, in spite of their constant rejection of him. And God also provided wealth for Jacob. You know, Jacob left the promised land empty-handed. He had nothing. When he returned, he was a wealthy man. He was a blessing to, to Laban. Laban's flocks and wealth increased in that time. Again, God said, you'll be a blessing to all people, all nations. God's still a blessing through him, in spite of his forgetting of who God was. And God blesses Jacob's flocks. And the interesting story of putting sticks out in front of them to have different speckled and stripes. And, and what I think was happening is there is Jacob was forgetting God again. This was the, the practice. You put these different sticks out there and they mate and have different colored kids. Well, so he's again forgetting God, saying this, this works. But it's really God who opens and closes the wounds. It's God who is providing that blessing to him, even in the midst, again, of Jacob's forgetfulness. Jacob's refusing to acknowledge God. God is still faithful to Jacob. His faithfulness continues throughout Israel's history. I want to spend a few seconds focusing on the, the, off, the original readers of this book of Genesis would have been Israel in the wilderness. And we all know Israel in the wilderness. And interesting enough, Israel's name means strives with God. Jacob, his name was changed from Jacob to Israel, strives with God. The whole time of Jacob's life, he was striving with God, trying to get what he could get. Israel, same thing, striving with God, complaining, focusing on the manna, focusing on the quail, focusing on the lack of water, 
instead of, man, God is with us. Look at that cloud protecting us from the sun. Look at the God who would create that cloud and be in that cloud and to have the presence with us. What an amazing God. See, God is still merciful, brings them to the promised land. And God's mercy is shown throughout the redemptive history. The climax of God's mercy is in Jesus Christ. Jacob, just like us, are in need of a merciful redeemer. And God makes this condescension. He talks about mercy being God condescending to us, coming to the earth. Jesus Christ, in his incarnation, was the ultimate beginning of that mercy. It is interesting, in John 1, 51, when Jesus is calling his disciples and he comes across uh, to, to Nathaniel, and he says, you will see the Son of Man, or the angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. And that immediately reminds me of a story we just read. A story about a ziggurat temple that also was described as angels ascending and descending. And in that very one short glimpse, that one short verse, I believe that John is referring back to this story of Jacob and saying that all the way back in the story of Jacob, God's mercy was being shown to Jacob through Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is that temple, the one who is fully God in heaven, the one who is fully man on earth, who came to be our Savior. He is the only way that we have access to God. Jesus Christ is that temple. You see, we need mercy. We don't need Bethel. We don't need food. We don't need clothing. What we need is God's mercy. And that mercy was shown to us through Jesus Christ. And I want us this morning, as we looked at the story of Jacob, to recognize how much we are like Jacob and how much we need God's mercy. You see, the Bible says that it's not up to him who works or wills, but to God who shows mercy. And our hope is not in our works. I hope that this morning you don't walk away and say, well, I have to try not to be like Jacob. What I want you to walk away with is repent, believe, and rejoice in God's mercy that he has shown to you. Rejoice in that mercy. And so as we recognize our sin, let us trust in the faithful, merciful promises of God. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for the story of Jacob that we can so easily find ourselves. And I thank you that in the story that you are not harsh with Jacob, that you showed him mercy every step of the way. And that so often as we are like Jacob and we strive with you and we forget you and we live and try to build our own kingdom, that you are faithful. And I thank you that you have not left us to ourselves, but that you have shown us mercy. Through your son, Jesus Christ, you have forgiven our sins. You have taken away the guilt. You have taken away our condemnation. And you have 
given us your righteousness. And so I pray that this morning we would rejoice in your faithful mercies as you have given to us through your Son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray.